So we do a lot of preparation with the with a future focused lens. Like we we talk a lot about, you know, we want to have kids be mindful and present, but when the present moment is this intense, sometimes we need to pit a little bit and focus towards what it'll be like after surgery, like what it'll be like, you know, when when all of these things are, you know, sort of behind us and what are we going to expect? So giving them this like end point to focus on while preparing them for what's about to happen is one of our big things. Welcome to the Child Life Wildlife Podcast, a platform dedicated to sharing the honest ins and outs and vulnerable truths about the child life profession with your host, Jessica Lewin. Come and gain tangible next steps and confidence as you learn how to use your child life skills, protect your mental health, and glean inspiration, hope, and ideas from fellow certified child life specialists, students, and professionals. And now, here's your host, Jessica Lewin. Hello, and welcome to the Child Life Wildlife Podcast. Today, I have on the show Kate Hamlin. She has been a child life specialist for 20 years, working exclusively with burn patients. She has a wild story to get herself here, and I'm not going to spoil a single thing, but I don't know if there's been many times that I have been speechless on the podcast and had to like tell a guest, I'm sorry, can we just, I, I don't understand, <laughs> but but that happened like twice in this episode where I was just like, wait, 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 let's rewind, help me understand. But she has a wild story. She has a lot of great information about how to support patients who have burns and it's just a really niche field. And if you have any interest in this whatsoever, I think you're going to love this episode. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kate Hamlin on working with burn patients. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for being on the Child Life Wildlife Podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm excited for this conversation. Um, Before we get into all of the things you have to talk about with working on the burn unit, I would love to just take a second to get to know you a little bit better. So who you are, fun facts, or anything that you'd like me and my listeners to know about you. Um, So I am originally, I'm now in Southern California, but I'm originally from just outside of Boston. So I made quite a shift and maybe sadly so I'm one of those dreaded Disney adults. So that's (laughs) sort of my fun, not work stuff that I do. And I rescue plants and dogs. So I have quite a garden of people's throwaway plants and a few little rescue pups and a tortoise actually. (laughs) So. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> I love that I rescue plants and dogs. I've never heard anybody say that before. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a great fun do. fact. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about some prior roles or hats that you've worn. So what are some units or departments or roles that you've had working as a child life specialist over the last 20 years? So I have been solely a burn child life specialist wow. um, my entire career. The caveat to that is that the role itself has expanded since I've been in it. Like mm-hmm. I, I work in what's considered a non-pediatric hospital, which we all joke about because there's peds everywhere, mm-hmm. but because they judge a child by its body size, not its developmental age, mm-hmm. we do have children 14 to 18 all over the place so once I realized that my role expanded outside of the burn unit but I have been based in burn for the last 14 and a half years wow 
Yeah. That is crazy. And we do see kids, obviously, of all ages in the burn center. It's yeah. just outside of burn. The you know, trauma, transplant, cancer, all of those populations are teenagers. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. Yeah. So where exactly did you, like, how did you get here? I feel like the burn unit <laughs> is such a niche place to work. And so was there a certain patient or situation that yeah. led you here? Or did you always have a passion for this population? So actually, I started my career as a a child welfare social worker in okay. Massachusetts. This is maybe to not to get to the other part is probably the weirdest thing about my path mm-hmm. is I started as a social worker and this job posted and it was very nondescript because mm-hmm. this institution didn't understand which child life was and neither did I. And I applied as a bachelor's level, not even an LCSW, but a bachelor's level of social worker because I had had experience starting child advocacy programs within the shelter system in Massachusetts and things like that. And I was hired. (laughs) I was not a child life specialist yet, um, but I was hired to be one. So um, that sort of path is how it came to be. And it's sort of the burn center and anyone who works in a burn center versus a burn unit will tell you that the American Burn Association requires child life. Hmm. And that was sort of the motivation for this institution to employ one is that they wanted that verification from the American Burn Association. So I was hired on to start the program and essentially ended up doing my realizing what the job was once I was hired and had to hire a supervisor, do an internship, get certified, and build a program in that first year. Oh, Um, my goodness. Yes. So it was, now mind you, this was eons ago. Yeah. (laughs) This was 2009. Okay. Um, And I was young enough to not realize how scary this was, but old enough to like probably pull it off. But it was one of those things that in retrospect, if I had known, I maybe wouldn't have done. But thankfully, I was blissfully ignorant to the work that was sort of ahead of me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I hired a wonderful woman from Mississippi who came and stayed in San Diego and helped me for a good chunk of time, <laughs> taught me everything. And I did that internship and made the program. So it was a part-time job. And the other half of my time was internship. So I would work And then I would do on my not working time, my internship. So I was here every day. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah. And so that's what, that's how that happened. And as far as the population, it's one of those things where I did not know what exactly I was walking into other than my experience with child abuse and neglect. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that because had you told me or had anybody just imagined it, they Mm -hmm. may be able to talk themselves out of it, but this is, I can't imagine working with a different population. I can't, it's everything about child life that we love, like the Mm -hmm. relationships, the long-term sort of understanding of families, and as well as that sort of instant gratification of getting an intervention to go well. Mm -hmm. Um, It all happens in this space, and I I wouldn't want to be in a different unit, but that said, it it is my sort of baby now, so (laughs) I'm probably a little bit biased. (laughs) Okay, I have so many questions. I feel like mm-hmm. um let's let's rewind for a second cuz I'm I'm just fascinated mm-hmm. that you started out as a social worker. So, yes. tell me a little bit about 
clearly you were looking for something different. If you were, if you were in the whole like child welfare area of social work, and then you're like, Hey, I want to apply for a hospital burn position. Like Mm -hmm. how did we get there? How did the jump happen? Or what did you feel like you were missing in social work? I guess. Yeah. So, um, I've, I should say I have since gone on and become a therapist Oh, and that's my other, my other role. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much that it wasn't what I wanted. I just felt like there was I was coming in too late, I guess, mm. in that role. So as child welfare, which I love everyone who does that work, yeah. um, I felt like, you know, they're calling us and the bad thing has happened and I'm going to sort of be the facilitator of the next bad thing, right? I'm going to mm. bring them to this new place, this new, and there's, oh, I think, a, a shelf life for how long you can do mm-hmm. that. And I thought, when I saw this, it was like, okay, these are those same kids that I'm familiar with and know how to engage with and work with. And I know that psychosocial piece very well, Mm -hmm. but it will allow me to do the work of making an impact that's going to be protective and proactive rather than reactive. Right. And that's sort of, even with therapy, right. We're reacting to the bad thing that's already happened, but with child life, we get the benefit of being proactive and taking a step before, Mm -hmm. um, the really bad thing, um, happens again or, or what have you, obviously in burn, they've already had a bad thing, but we can help prevent some of the ongoing stress and trauma. And I think that was appealing. Yeah. Um, It still is appealing. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So, you get hired as this child life specialist back in 2009 as mm-hmm. a, so- a bachelor's social worker. Mm-hmm. Ha- so, and, and it sounds like the place that hired you didn't quite understand what a child life specialist yeah. needed to be, but they were trying to get this sort yeah, of like so, check, so, check mark. Yeah. Like. So they had a, a list of like requirements, like yeah. educationally, like they knew what educationally had to exist. Right. And I checked those boxes because my emphasis had been children and families. Right. And they, what they didn't understand was this concept of an internship, mm-hmm. which I mean, a lot of people outside of our world don't. Yeah. Um, because I did have a, you know, a thousand hours worth of internship as mm-hmm. a social worker in my undergrad. And they didn't understand that they didn't quite transfer. Yeah. So there was a little bit of learning. I will say that the the institution I work for now, about 10 years prior to me being hired, we, we did have peds here and there was child life. Mm-hmm. So some of the very senior nurses had a vague understanding of what child life could be. Yeah. But we were a decade out and that those specialists had never been on the burn unit. They'd been strictly peds. Mm. And so there was a hint of understanding <laughs> of what it was supposed to be. And if honestly, if it hadn't been for, you know, the forums at the time, the the ACLP, well, at the time it was the Child Life Council's yeah. um, forums that they had and my ability to reach out to specialists that did know what they were doing, it would have been a very different long game for me, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they they had good intentions, but not a lot of understanding of the process. Um, I When I've asked since then, since mm-hmm. that hiring, what made them decide to, because my understanding is that there were specialists that, you know, interviewed and everything like that. But they, because our population and where we're located, there are so many family dynamics mm-hmm. and so much in terms of that child protective and social issue stuff. Mm-hmm that they wanted someone who wasn't going to be scared of that. Oh. Um, 
And so that seems to be what, what pushed me over the edge. Cause I've, trust me, I have asked that question <laughs> to myself. I'm like, how did this happen? I mean, I'm very grateful, but how yeah. did this happen? But yeah, as, as a result, I think of my previous experience in that, in those kind of scary spaces, it helped. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. That is such an interesting story. And I feel <laughs> like, yeah, just like super unique that that is how you just came to be a child life specialist and yeah. you hired, you hired your supervisor. I did. <laughs> Essentially. I had to hire my supervisor. Yeah. I mean, and, and she was so gracious and I probably looked at me like, Oh girl, you have no idea. Right. <laughs> you have no idea what you've gotten yourself into. But I think that that was also a blessing. I think, yeah. and like I said, not knowing was helpful. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And I, you know, as a result, I've, you know, it's been years and years and years, but I was very hard on myself as far as like, let's get as much education. Let's get as much training. Let's go to all the things. Let's meet mm-hmm. all the people. Like I tried very hard. We were, you know, I was very isolated in my like one person little thing yeah. um, with no formal understanding of what the role was supposed to look like. So we had a learning curve for sure. Yeah. Wow. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. That's like super, super unique. So when we go back to, let's go back to the burn unit. Um, yeah. What does the role of a child life specialist working in the burn unit look like? I should say that I was a one person program for seven years and wow. then became a two person program. And just as of last year, I'm now a three person program. So mm. it's obviously evolved and I'm really grateful for that. And, but what it looks like for us is we have our inpatient burn and our outpatient burn all on the same floor. Mm. So our outpatient clinic our ICU and our step-down unit are all right next door neighbors to each other. Wow. Um, and so our clinic serves as a daily like checkup clinic mm-hmm. as well as a emergency room type of clinic. So basically the way our day works is we prioritize the most acute things as we would assume, mm-hmm. but we think we have that kind of a schedule. We'll know who's inpatient, who's getting dressing changes, who's coming to the clinic that might change if, somebody comes in emergently, it might change if somebody ends up needing to go to a procedure unexpectedly or something of that nature, but everything is sort of in one space. So we can kind of navigate fairly simply back and forth through the spaces without missing too much. But yeah, we follow our kids for years. We have an additional long-term clinic that happens once a week. Um, and those kids could be, you know, years out from their initial injury, but now getting reconstruction and things mm-hmm. like that. So, um, yeah, our days are usually surgeries and dressings early in the morning, lots of debriefing play and preparation for other procedures mm-hmm. um, throughout the rest of the day. Do you, you mentioned like the burn ICU, do you see very m- many patients dying on the burn unit or is that not as common? Thankfully, we have a fantastic team um, yeah. in that usually if a patient is going to pass, mm-hmm. they came in in a nearly about to pass okay. sort of state, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, we have, of course, had issues and situations where patients, you know, decompensate burn is really hard on the body. Mm-hmm. Can It ends up affecting everything and, you know, organ failures and things like that become, you know, problematic. But as far as children, we've lost very few children since I've been here. And we do work with the children of adults, and that's a little more common because those injuries tend to be like work-related and bigger, yeah, or accident-related to other issues and things like that, and bigger. And so there are definitely more adults' losses than child losses. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but across the board, our team is kind of fantastic and people that you would never imagine would walk out of here do. So it's, mm. it's kind of amazing in that way. That is very yeah. amazing. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about just now talking about the adult world too and helping those children of yeah. adult patients. Um, what does that look like as a child life specialist working with those who have burns? Yeah. So we, that is a role we take on throughout the entire hospital system. Mm-hmm. And it's probably an even bigger population than just our, our burn. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for the burn population, it is a lot of education. The thing that's hard. So if we were to work with a family who maybe a parent is, or a loved one is passing due to cancer or COVID or um, another long-term condition, mm-hmm. we can often invite that child into the space to say goodbye and have those family moments and rituals and things like that in a way that is, you know, comforting and brings a bit of, you know, peace to that moment. Mm-hmm. Obviously doesn't re- repair it, but with Fern, it is very hard because that person usually does not look like the person yeah. that they remember. And, you know, a burn ICU is just like any other ICU with all the machines and bells and, and whistles. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the addition of the bandages and the sort of scarier mm-hmm. um, look to things, per- person-wise, I should say. Yeah. So part of the piece that's different when we work with these families is you know, explaining the nature of burn mm-hmm. uh, and what burn does to the body and why mom or dad or brother or sister might look very different. And it also involves a lot of explaining how doctors and nurses are making sure that all of the scary things that they're seeing are not hurting that patient mm. because it can look like, you know, a lot of something you would imagine be very painful, right? Yeah. But at end of life, we've got everybody's very you know, comfortable, sedated and things like that. So reminding those kids that that is not something they need to worry about for their loved one in that moment mm-hmm. um, also is helpful. But again, it's age dependent. Additionally, it's not an area where I push at all for visits if someone's uncomfortable. Yeah. Because we can't, unlike, you know, the, the cancer goodbyes mm-hmm. um, or anything like that, we can't promise them what they are going to see won't scare them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, usually we'll be like, you know, it's still mom's going to look like mom. She's just going to look like she's sleeping. Things like that are a lot of these conversations that we might have. She has her eyes closed, but she, you know, she's, she's still mom. But when it's in burn, they aren't going to necessarily make that connection if they're younger. And so, yes, we don't tell them they can't, of course, but we don't push for visits if they're already sharing that they're not comfortable because it's, it's, it is an intense space for them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a ton of experience working with burn patients, but that is something that I don't think I would have fully realized is that they don't look the same mm-hmm. and that, that, yeah, that can be very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, it is very interesting, especially if, I mean, if they're bandaged, I mean, they do a good job of making sure we look, yeah. but if they're bandaged, there's a lot of swelling in addition to everything else. So mm-hmm. they may seem even bigger than like mom or dad. They're like, no, my dad, you know, didn't look like that. Or my mom didn't look like that. That's true. Um, and it makes it hard to make, for them to make the connection sometimes mm-hmm. um, at, at end of life. We do a, a sort of different approach when, when someone is on that path to recovery. Mm-hmm. We might wait a little longer for a face-to-face until maybe mom or dad can can talk. And then that's helpful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it can be, it's, it's an area where we tread gently. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What 
are some interventions or therapeutic play activities that you prioritize on the burn unit to help your patients cope? I would say with burn, it's it, it's very much like all all the other units mm-hmm. that you would be working with any child who's facing something painful. And we talk about this a lot with the students of, you know, this is a situation where things are going to get much, much more painful as we go along before they start to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, surgeries and grafts and things like that. A lot of patients will share that their graft sites where we've taken the skin actually hurts worse than their burn. And, and how do you really prepare a child for that? So we do a lot of preparation with the with a future-focused lens. We, we talk a lot about, you know, we want to have kids be mindful and present, but when the present moment is this intense, sometimes we need to pit a little bit and focus towards what it'll be like after surgery, like mm-hmm. what it'll be like, you know, when when all of these things are, you know, sort of behind us and what are we going to expect? So giving them this like end point to focus on while preparing them for what's about to happen is one of our big things. But a lot of what we do honestly here is a lot of play in like debriefing. Mm. So no matter what you do to prepare a kid for a dressing change or a surgery or even an anesthesia dressing change, is it, it has to be experienced to be truly understood for these kids a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So w- we spend a lot of time post-procedure working through their experiences, a lot of, you know, the standard medical play and, and things like that, but a lot of activities where they can have some control over the moment, a lot of activities where they can be upset about what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, you know, I have rules about, um, you know, we don't hit the staff or we don't throw things at the staff and we don't maybe curse the staff, but I'm not going to tell you you can't yell, right? I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell you you can't squish the thing or, or be mad or behave or what have you. So a lot of what we do is debrief and play through those big feelings that have come up through like the, just the unfairness of Mm -hmm. the situation for them and let them sort of have at it at that point in the playroom or a bedside, depending on where they're at with their recovery. Another thing that we do that really helps is we allow certain, depending on the age (laughs) and the disposition and developmental stage of the child is we allow for like pauses and timeouts through certain procedures. Mm. They have control over that and that helps us a lot, but we do have, you know, to avoid having this be every five seconds, we have a certain amount based on what the procedure is, how long it's going to take, and a certain time frame based on the child's, you know, age and procedure that they can have like that pause where everybody takes their hands off and yeah. we, we wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah. Um, I think we have a team that is generally on board mm-hmm. with with all of that. So that's good. Yeah. Is there any maybe therapeutic activities or interventions that you do maybe with like your teenage population when, you know, this, this age developmentally is very focused on what they look like and what their identity is. So is there anything that you, you focus on for that age group? Yeah. So there's a few different things, a lot of expressive activities, right? A Mm -hmm. lot of what you'd expect with either journaling or art or things like that. But Something that we use a lot is the Phoenix Society, which is the nation, the national burn survivor um, nonprofit organization, support organization, has online like connection groups for burn survivors specifically. And Mm. it allows the people to patients of all ages, but teens are particularly good at this whole connecting via the Mm -hmm. internet. 
the allows them to connect with each other um, and sort of see that other people are sharing their experience and how they've you know moved forward through things. Yeah. Um, one of the things that is unique about our program that I implemented at the beginning when I didn't know better was um, we actually do burn survivor like field trips essentially. So when our patients, the teens in particular for this one, but we also do a local one for little littles, when they have recovered enough to be home and mm-hmm. back in school and all that, those things, we do a annual like trip to Disneyland or Knott's or Berry Farm or one of these theme parky type of immersive experiences where we mm-hmm. take them all together and they get to practice how to respond to people staring, how to you know, engage with the community as a burn survivor mm. in real time, but with other burn survivors. And then this, this, the chaperones for these events are all the nurses that took care of them. So they feel, you know, supported and seen, but they get to have this fun day, but they also get challenged by how am I going to go out in the community and deal with the change in my appearance when people stare or when people ask questions or mm-hmm. any of that type of stuff. So that's a big part of what we do to support the teens, particularly through body image. Mm-hmm. Um, they can participate even if they don't have a visible burn because we've learned that hidden burns have some major psychological components to them as well. Yeah. So we let them all come, but that's one of our big program installations for, for that population. That is such a neat idea. I love that. Yeah. yeah, it works out pretty well. Almost everybody gets to deal with somebody staring at some point yeah. in those settings, and then they have you know support. That's great. You mentioned a couple times uh, the students that come onto the mm-hmm. burn unit with you, and I'm just curious if they ever have any kind of feedback of like how they've adjusted to the burn unit as a student or things that they yeah. learn specific to that unit. Yeah, I think we get a unique population of students Mm -hmm. um, that is drawn here in the first place because they know coming in that we're burn trauma palliative care and that's it. So they, it's, it's a high intensity sort of space to learn in. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of this, all of us who work, who work here now did our internship here. So we kind of all feel (laughs) like uniquely um, qualified in that way. But the students that come will often say, you know, I didn't realize that I would just be in the moment like I would with any kid. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's sort of, you know, the takeaway here is it it's bigger in your head yeah. than it is in the moment when you're in the work. The thing you think would be impossible to sit with is actually just a kid that needs your help. And so I think that's a big thing. And I think another thing is that they will often share is, you know, they not to rely on, you know, one intervention, just like anything else, like Mm -hmm. to come prepared. We've always, we have waves of students, some that are very much into like having the tablet and having the games. And we have to sort of say, well, what happens when the tablet dies or the Mm -hmm. internet goes down? Right. And others that don't use that at all. And there are kids that that's all they want. So having sort of a lot of options because these procedures can go on for a while yeah they're in you know they're high intensity and they are not the easiest to distract through something that a couple actually the last few rounds students have shared is basically learning that just because a child continues to be distressed or cry um doesn't mean that they failed Mm -hmm. 
And we've tried to get that message across through all the years because it took me a while to personally (laughs) resonate with that message. Mm -hmm. But it's going to hurt no matter what, right? Right. And at the end of the day, did that child feel supported while the thing hurt? Did they feel heard while the thing hurt? Did they feel cared about? Did they feel like they had an ally in the room? Mm -hmm. If all of those things happened and it still hurt, you didn't fail. You did exactly what you needed to do and you were very successful. And it's a difference between having a a child in pain versus a child in pain being traumatized. And that's, I think, one of the biggest takeaways because I think we see these images, especially students. I teach, you know, students in the classroom as well. And I think we see these images of these perfect interventions and the Mm -hmm. child smiling at the end of it. And that's not what you're going to get here. Right. (laughs) And that child could love and adore you as their specialist. And Mm -hmm. you're still not going to get that at the end of that dressing, nine times out of 10 anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think being able to be confident that you are still doing your role, even though that child is still distressed about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's making me um, think about when I was working in the hospital setting and we did have like a small wound clinic and I... Mm -hmm. Now that you're verbalizing that it's because I felt like I wasn't successful as a child life mm-hmm. specialist in that area because I couldn't make the pain go – like, I'm not going yeah. to, but it's that it, they just kept crying. I was – it was mm-hmm. never – I didn't walk out of there feeling like I was successful, you know? So, yeah. But that is such a good point to realize that, like, it is painful. It's incredibly mm-hmm. painful. And just because you have a child life specialist next to you, that that physical pain is not going to go away. Um, yeah. Gosh, I wish I would have known that when I was working in the <laughs> hospital because I could have yeah. used this episode to like feel a little bit more confident in myself because my phone would ring and it would say wound clinic and I'd be like, oh no, I don't want to go. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, and no, and it's true. And I think we just have to remember like the goal isn't to be Novocaine, right? right. Our job is for that child to feel like they aren't powerless mm-hmm. and they have a say in what's happening to them to yeah. some degree. And so, yeah, it's just sort of pivoting back to the purpose and like away from maybe the postcard version of mm-hmm. child life to like the sort of meat of what we do. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Could you talk a little bit about what are some skills or traits that are important to have when working with this demographic? So I think theoretically, anyone who is trained in sort of the understanding of what we what we do on a day-to-day as specialists could step into this space. Mm-hmm. The population of students that do well and actually love this tend to have both the, you know, quick thinking adaptability piece, Mm -hmm. but also the creative piece that can keep up with the longevity of the patient. So we are, the best way to describe a burn center would be it's an emergency room type of urgency and also the long-term acute care type of work. So you need to be able to wear both hats. You need to be able to figure out how to like pivot on what's happening in that moment, in that moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as, you know, how do I continually engage this patient who has been here for weeks and weeks and is, you know, having surgery after surgery? How do I continue to engage them, keep them, you know, stimulated developmentally and, you know, normalize this environment when it's definitely not and all of those things that you would see in long-term care while also having the skills of in sort of an emergency setting. So I think a good place, if someone wanted to pivot and work here type of thing, mm-hmm. it would be 
um, I would recommend any kind of exposure to emergency work mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because it is graphic uh, and there are some things that do take a little adjusting. It is interesting. The students do very quickly say, oh, the burn, like they made fun of me when they started. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that burn looks really good now. And they'll be like, what are you looking at? <laughs> does not look good but now like that you know the students who are just finishing up like they're coming down and they're from clinic and they're saying you know oh it looked really good they're going to be you know a couple more visits and they're good to go Mm -hmm. so you do get uh, your vision sort of adjusted to it but I think experiencing that in like an emergency setting where people are medical professionals are moving quickly and they want you to be able to move quickly yeah um but they also want you to be able to keep that kid engaged and a okay while during the downtime um so i think it's sort of a marrying of those skill sets but if you are someone who feels like they'd be comfortable in an emergency room you'll you would be excellent in burn and and vice versa a lot of the interns end up in emergency um centers when when they go on from here because of that um and it is a skill that is very unique in a lot of my students will hear that in interviews where they're like oh my gosh like i can't believe that's that was your first yeah experience it's true you know? so yeah i think that sort of adaptability but also that like long-term creativity mm-hmm. that's a great way to put that that you do really have to have a, a great mix of both inpatient mm-hmm. and outpatient mind yeah mm-hmm. this has been a really great episode i would love to go to the closing questions i ask everyone so the first yeah. question is if someone's listening today and they are really resonating with what you're saying about working on a burn unit what is one tangible action step that they could take to get them on a right path or a way for them to be successful on that unit? So I would say first is remember skills are transferable. Mm-hmm. If you have, if your heart is saying this is something you're interested in, there is a 99% chance that you're going to be able to do great. But I would say familiarize yourself with the burn world. It is its own community, similar to how there's a cancer community. And Phoenix Society is a good place to start. Um, Burn survivor, this is something that's lifelong. The experience that they had in the hospital, as well as the living their life afterwards as a burn survivor is lifelong. So, you know, just perusing the Phoenix Society websites, learning about the community, so we don't step into a space sort of completely blind, as Mm -hmm. I needed it. But I think just remembering that skills are transferable and all you need is a little bit of background to to get that sense. And and nobody expects that someone who's never, I hope, let me say that, I don't want to <laughs> assume. I hope nobody expects that a very well-intentioned specialist who has a heart for this would ex- would know everything right away. Yeah. You know, we train dressings, everything changes all the time. We're always learning. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that that would be seen. And I believe it is for the most part. But I think just remembering that you know what you're doing and that if you feel that called this space, that there is a space probably very well waiting for you there. That's great. Yeah. I do have a lot of students that follow along and listen to this podcast. So what is one thing that you'd say to them as a tip for moving through this profession as a whole? Um, Don't get discouraged, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is such a cliche. But I feel like if you are, if you know where you're headed, you're already in better shape than I ever was, right? Mm -hmm. If you know where, where your heart is pulling you, like, you know, this is the field for you and you continue to feel sort of discouraged by maybe the process or the path and the chaos. I want to encourage you in the sense that 
even as professionals, we are also sometimes frustrated mm -hmm. um, and encouraged by some of, of the things. And it it's you're not alone in that. It is um, it can be challenging. Your feelings are valid, but it, it is possible. You're going to get to the other side. And I would very much encourage when we're feeling maybe overwhelmed or a loss in the process to pull pull back and protect yourself a little bit. I mm -hmm. think where a lot of students get overwhelmed is they reach out to a bunch of different communities and a bunch of different maybe forums or or what have you. And there's a lot of conflicting information. And I think, you know, stay the path with the path that you understand to be correct, mm -hmm. that you know from either your school or from ACLP or from, you know, people like, you know, you just said people who are sharing the information that is, you know, then validated. Mm -hmm. um, follow that. Don't assume because somebody is maybe, I think one of my biggest things with students is don't assume you need to jump into a thousand different trainings or a thousand different directions to be super well-rounded. Just hone those core skills yeah. and lay the path. Um, one of my, one of my passions is not letting I, predatory nature of certain programmings around students really bothers me. And mm. you're, you're already there, you know, where you're headed, mm -hmm. um, just the path and like, trust your, trust yourself and trust the, the profession that you're, you're following into. Don't get caught up in the noise. Yeah. This last question, I'm super excited for you to answer because I feel like <laughs> your whole career has been wild, but if child yeah. life is a wild life, what has been the wildest part of your experience so far? I mean, getting to this point, to be honest, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I honestly, like sitting here talking to you as a person who has any idea what they're doing <laughs> is probably the wildest part to understand that like I'm now in a space where I, I know this is my, this is what I do. This mm -hmm. is my, this is my life, right? Um, that's probably the wildest because if you had told me, I mean, I had people betting against me. Mm. Um, there were family members even saying like, she's not going to last six months on a burn unit. Like, Aww. so I would say keep going because mm -hmm. you'll never know. You may be 15 years later, very much in love with your role and your job and your team. And, and it, it gets, I think it's, I think we're very lucky to be in this space. And so I think yeah. the wildest part is that I stayed long enough to realize that. Yeah, that's great. Thank yeah. you so much for being on the podcast and sharing of your wisdom. Course. I really appreciated this conversation. I appreciate you. Thank you. 